So I'll let you guys behind the curtain a little bit. At Renaissance, we have a teaching team of people. Uh, the teaching team of people is made up of about five people who we think and we pray about what might be the Lord's invitation to us about what type of stuff we should teach. And we pray and we plan um, months in advance oftentimes. And we really did land on this series on commissioned, connecting your faith at your job, because really one of the burning, burning passions of our pastors and our, and our staff is that you would learn what it means to follow Jesus with all of your life. I think we have Sunday morning, we have a good grasp on Sunday morning, but what you do for the rest of your week is something that should be deeply connected to your faith. So whether you are a full-time student or whether you are working a job, we want your life, we want your faith to truly be in, to impact uh, your work and what you do for 40 or 50 or 60 hours a week. And so one of the things that... Um, people think about whenever you think about your faith and your job, people usually think like, well, to be a Christian at work is to have the little thing on my desk, the scripture, or to Jesus juke someone in the coffee room and to start talking about Jesus at your job. And make no mistake about it, you know, I, I used to practice law and I actually did have a lot of conversations with people about faith. Uh, but the, the main goal of your life and your faith should not just be trying to figure out at school or at work, how do you corner someone into a conversation about Jesus? That's not really a beautiful life. Scripture tells us to do something much different. In Colossians, it says this, act wisely toward outsiders, making the most of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer each person. Now, that last line about how to answer each person is a really profound truth because it's assuming that you live your life in a questionable way, that people would see the way you live and that your life is different and that they would question you about your life and then you could respond to them. Now, today we're talking about rest, rest. And my fear is that the way that most of us understand uh, rest is that it's so separated from our faith and in some ways, it doesn't feel like a very spiritual thing to do. But particularly as you engage with work, one of the most profound witnesses about your work is that you work differently than everybody else. So when I talk to people at, about, at Renaissance and people in Harlem about their job, some of the words I hear most often is that everybody, their job is chaotic. They're exhausted. They're overloaded. They have very few boundaries and they're stressed. Now, most of us live that life. Our life is chaotic. We're exhausted. We have no boundaries. And then we figure out, well, to be a Christian at work, is I'm going to be stressed, exhausted, and find a way to talk about Jesus. I think a much more compelling witness, a much better conversation starter at your job, is if you were a person that was unhurried, you had space, you were non-reactive, and you were not anxious, and you were rested. Everybody at your job would be like, yo, what are you doing that's so different than us? That would put you in a position where you would be living in line with what Colossians is saying, is to, to give an answer to each one who asks you. And so one of my mentors, Pete Scazzaro, says it like this. He says, part of what it means to be God's people is that we're a prophetic sign, giving people a taste of Jesus. 
And one of the greatest gifts we can give to the world is by living and modeling rhythms, boundaries, and a healthy, thriving relationship with our work. Now, it is impossible to, to have this witness, to be this type of person without rhythms, without rest. And for us, refusing to succumb to the enormous pressure of our culture around us, uh, we would serve as a sign that we are free people. We have been called out of the world trying to prove our worth by its value, by what we do or possess, but rather that we are deeply loved by God, not for what we do, but who we are. So really quickly, uh, there are two extremes, two extremes in this room when it comes to work. Uh, on one side, there's the workaholics. Uh, workaholics, I, I heard a pastor talk about this, almost, it, like, it starts to form and function in your life, almost like alcoholism does. So it starts like social drinking. People then kind of escalate to brag about how much they can work. And then you could work other people under the table. It, prog it progresses to addiction, and then you actually get hooked. You work until you pass out. Not physically, literally, but you work until the point to where you are emotionally unavailable for the people that you say you love. You come home and you're dead to the world. You have nothing to give or to offer to anyone. Eventually, your family and friends beg you to stop, but you're too busy to listen. You have excuses for some imaginary point in the future when you're going to finally slow down. And in your brain, you, know, you say, I can stop whenever I want to. I just don't want to stop, just not right now. And when you do try to slow down, if you ever try to slow down, you go through withdrawal. You're always looking at your phone. You're constantly anxious about what you're missing. You're constantly feeling like you're behind or other people are surpassing you. You take work on vacations, weekends, and holidays. Work is your life and your love. Now, a lot of people grew up in households like this, where one of your parents or both of your parents were workaholics. And you know, I read a tweet the other day that said, the only people 20 years from now that will remember how hard you worked and all the days you stayed late in the office are your children. Now, people have seen this, and some people have swung to the other extreme. Uh, these are the people who are, I would like to call it, um, it's a escapism, where you're trying to nurse a fantasy to try to get out of work. You dream about getting out of all your work and all of your responsibilities. Everything would be absolutely magical if you can finally stop working. You can finally get away from all of this drudgery and monotony. And finally, if you didn't have to work, you would enjoy your life. Now, the problem with that perspective is that although we should not be workaholics, God did create us to work. God made us his image bearers. It's a part of our humanity. It's our first commission. Work is a good thing when we do it in service to other people and we do it uh, to God. Whether you are a line cook at a restaurant, in fashion, helping people to look and to feel beautiful, an app developer simplifying people's lives, or a preacher on a stage, whatever you do, go to your workplace and build for God. But still, so God does not invite us to, be, to escape the reality of what work is intended to mean. And earlier in the series, we talked about that. And nor does God obviously want us to be workaholics. So today we're talking about rest and not just 
any kind of rest. We're not just talking about watching more Netflix, although I will take your recommendations after service. Rest is accepting the fact that you have limitations, not begrudgingly, but that God, when he formed and fashioned you in your mother's womb, the one who made you, made you with a specific set of limitations. And he does not want you to dishonor the limitations that he created you with. God does not want you to exceed the bounds of what you can actually produce. And so rest is an act of faith to accept God's limitations on us uh, and trusting that God is God and everything will be okay if we do not work ourselves to death. So in the beginning, God created rhythms. God created rhythms. In Genesis 1 and 14, it says this, then God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the sky to separate the day from the night. They will serve, uh, they will serve as signs for seasons and for days and years. When, <clears throat> so the first thing you see in the earliest pages of scripture is that God created rhythms. He created days. He created weeks. He created seasons. And in the created order of what God initially intended, God intended for us to have moments of waking and moments of sleeping. As you see God in the first pages of scripture, you see that the Lord worked for six days, and on the seventh day, God rested. That is a profound theological truth, that God himself rested. So God could have made a rhythmless week if he wanted to, a world without days and weeks, but in his wisdom, God gave us rhythms because they make the world a good place for us finite humans in need of rest and refreshment. As creatures of dust, we are creatures of rhythm. Now, there's a couple of really big main themes in the Bible, for those of you who um, haven't studied theology. Um, one of the biggest themes in Scripture is this theme of the Exodus, now, the first book of the Bible is Genesis, and it shows how God created the world and what God intended for the world to be. In Exodus, you see this really big theme where God's people are taken from their place and they are put into slavery in Egypt. Now, slavery in Egypt represents a period where they are not free to do as they choose. They are under the harsh orders of Pharaoh. They are not free. And what God does is, in Scripture, God frees his people from Egypt, and not just the physical place, but also an Egyptian mindset, that their value is based on what they produce. When they were slaves in Egypt, their value was only what they could produce. But once they became free people, God gives them a new rule and uh, a new way of things. So we see this in Exodus chapter 20. It says, Then God spoke all these words, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the place of slavery. So as soon as God frees his people, God gives them these instructions and reminds them that I brought you out of slavery. Now, now that you are no longer in Egypt, this is how I want you to behave and to believe. Verse 8, it says, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. You are to labor six days and you do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. You must not do any work, you, your son or daughter, your male or female servant, your livestock, or the resident alien who is within your city gates. For the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, 
and everything in them in six days. Then he rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath and declared it holy. Now, there are two extremes when it comes to this scripture. The first is a really legalistic approach. And I want to be sensitive to people, particularly who grew up in Seventh-day Adventist um, church environments, where really the determining factor of whether or not you were saved was whether or not you kept the Sabbath on a particular day at that. Uh, One of my boys in college, um, he was Seventh-day Adventist, and we would get into all of these late-night conversations in my dorm room, and it always got back to, well, what day do you practice the Sabbath? And if you didn't say, you know, the specific time on Saturday, he was like, you ain't going to meet him one day. So there's a legalistic approach that turns Sabbath into another thing that you have to do to earn God's approval. It makes it a very rigid one-day thing that you have to do or else you are cut off from God. Now, the problem with that is Jesus, the way he interacted and behaved, uh, did not adopt this legalistic approach. In Mark 2 and 27, it says, this, it says these words. It says, then he told them, the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. So then the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Let me read verse 27 again. It says, the Sabbath was made for man. In other words, this is a gift to you, not a requirement from you, not man for the Sabbath. So Sabbath and rhythms, they're not a test for you to pass if God loves you or likes you. It's a spaciousness for you to enter. It is for our benefit. Now, the other side of this, uh, the extreme theologically, treats the scripture as if it's irrelevant that the Sabbath was something that was written thousands of years ago and has no application to your life. And in some ways, that's a misunderstanding of all of the means of grace. The means of grace are the things that God intends to grow you by. So if you didn't read your Bible this morning, you're not going to go to hell for that. But I've never met a person who has grown in their faith who doesn't read their Bible. If you didn't pray this morning, you're not going to lose fellowship with Jesus. But I've never met a person who has grown and thrived in their faith without prayer. If you don't practice Sabbath, you're not going to be cut off from Jesus from that. But I've never known a person who has had the spaciousness in their life to hear God's voice uncluttered by all the other voices around them without this practice. And so we want to talk about that today, what it looks like to really engage in this biblical rhythm of rest. And I hope that today is really practical, stuff that you can take and put it into your practice this week. So biblical rest, as I mentioned before, is very different. It's not just a day off to chill. Day off to chill is great. Who doesn't love one of those? But as you see in the scripture in Exodus, it says, the Sabbath is a day to the Lord. So it's different than just a day for yourself, a day to chill, a day to vegetate. It's a day to the Lord. And it also doesn't mean that you're reading the Bible for 24 hours straight either. So there are four components to the Sabbath. Um, Stop, rest, delight, contemplate. Stop, rest, delight, and contemplate. So stop means, stop actually comes from the Greek word stop. It means to stop. It doesn't mean slow down. It means to stop. Now, ideally, this means for a 24-hour period, you would not do any work, paid or unpaid. Now, 
couple quick caveats here. Again, this is an invitation to us. This is a gift to us. This is not meant to be a legalistic command. If you do 22 hours, you failed God. No. There's a, a lot of reasons for which you might not be able to stop for 24 hours, stop all your unpaid work, for example. Parents of small kids, kids got to eat. They got to take baths. They got to do all these different things. And it's impossible to stop parenting them for an entire day. If you did, there might be a CPS worker at your door for doing that. If you're caring for, if you're a caretaker for someone who's ill, again, these are demands on your life that you're not able to always shut off for a perfect amount of time. Other people, if you work a lower paying job and it's like not physically feasible for you to earn a living wage, even though you work really hard for 40 hours, again, I want to be very sensitive to that as well. And so really stopping does a couple of things. One, stopping is putting up a boundary in your life. And one of the best boundaries you can do, particularly from your work, is this. And some of you are going to start to feel anxious as soon as I say this. Turn off your push notifications for email, Slack, Teams, whatever tool, Monday, whatever tool it is that your job uses, turn off the push notifications for that for the 24-hour period. Tell your coworkers in advance what you're going to do, but stop. Because here's what I've seen. I've seen so many people try to practice rest and they're sitting outside in Central Park. They got a blanket. They're eating some goat cheese and salami. Everything is great. And then the email comes in. Then the Slack message comes in. And they start to complain and suck their teeth and talk about how mad they are that this coworker has the nerve to reach out to them on their day off. You didn't have the wisdom to put up a boundary. You didn't put up a boundary. It came in because you are like a city without walls. People can come and go as they please. It is not their fault that they encroached on an on a area that you didn't put up a boundary to. Now, if somebody goes around the wall and starts wilding and they violate, then yes, you can reach out to them about that. But you, the first thing you need to do is you need to stop. Now, you'll know that you're really addicted to work when you get anxiety just around the concept of stopping. Part of that is because you believe that the world is going to stop spinning once you get off of whatever it is that you're doing in your job. And we've made ourselves feel more important than we, we truly are. So this is a really big challenge for people who are also building their identity on their work. Listen, I know what it feels like to work 18-hour work days in full grind season, working hard, but more than working hard, trying to make a name for myself trying to run away from the fear that unless I succeed, I'm a failure. And so we need to reckon, recognize some of the reasons we don't stop. But the first aspect of Sabbath, the biblical rest that God wants to invite you into, is to stop and to say, God, for 24 hours, I'm going to put the world back in your hands, not mine. The second aspect of, uh, of Sabbath is rest. And uh, once we stop we are able to accept God's invitation to rest. I love the scripture in Matthew 11 where Jesus says, Come to me, all of you who are weary, um, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, for my yoke is light, and I will give you rest. Now, in the, old, uh, in the olden days, in the ancient times, there were specific yokes, these wood things that were put on specific oxes. And what Jesus is saying is, my, the yoke that I want to put on your shoulders, it fits you. It's like crafted for you. 
It's not going to break you. It's going to help you thrive. The third aspect of, of uh, biblical rest is uh, delight. So, man, here's one of the biggest problems with, with us in the church. For those of you who are Christians, we have like a really underformed theology of delight. We think that to be in God's will means we're miserable. We think that like I know that I'm really in God's will when I'm really unhappy, when I'm doing the most difficult thing imaginable. And that's because we look at God like he's not a good father. Last year, I took my son to Disneyland and without a shadow of a doubt, I had way more fun than he did. And I, all I did was just see the delight in his eyes. That brought me an immense amount of joy. If it's true that God has made you his children, then God wants you to delight. God delights in your delight. You know, this is a difficult thing for me. Um, you know, I, I've really gone decades without even knowing what to do to delight. So my therapist told me this. Try this on for size. If it works, if it doesn't, try something different. Uh, she told me, Jordan, come up with a list of 10 things that you like to do that, number one, they're not sinful. Number two, they don't require anybody else to do it. And number three, they're not productive. So it's not sinful, it's not productive, and you could do it by yourself. And so it really took me a long time to even come up with things. I had to ask Jess like, to help me write a list of like, what do I like to do? She's like, this is your list. This is a big problem if you don't know how to do that. And so, I mean, it really, and it also was a challenge for me to give time to doing something unproductive. But when you are unproductive and delighting, you are rehearsing the gospel, that God loves you, not for what you can produce, but because of who you are and what he has blessed you with. And so delight is something that, you know, my wife and I, we spend a lot of time trying to uh, structure our Sabbath around delight. Every now and then we'll get our passports out and go to Brooklyn. And um, <laughs> years ago, man, we went to this one, this one spot in Brooklyn. They closed down. It was a Slovakian cheeseburger place where they would fry the burger and then wrap it in dough and then fry the dough and split that joint. It would come out. Chef's kiss. It was amazing. On those days, even though it was just time to connect and time to enjoy, that is a holy thing. One of the best ways you can nurture a vibrant spiritual life is also by nurturing delight in your life. So many of us spend all of our time trying to run away from sin, run towards good godly delight, and you'll see yourself behave in much different ways. And the last one is to contemplate. So contemplate is when we are actively receiving God's words and truth to us. So we're not, uh, again, so a a real true day of rest, biblical rest, allows contemplation, allows us to receive God's words to us, to form us, because we need to periodically stop and rest and to hear what God wants to tell us. We need to al align our lives around God, not the other way around. And so as we do the things of stopping, of resting, of delighting and contemplating, uh, we can really truly enter into the rest that God wants us to have. So a few years ago, a friend of mine in our community group uh, told a story that, man, it really has never, I've never been able to shake it. 
So he was a, a first-year resident in medical school, and residents in medical school, they do different rotations uh, in different parts of the hospital. And this part of, the, this part of his residency, he was doing in the ER. And so as he was in the ER, they gave him one of these little beepers. And I have no idea why they still use beepers in hospitals, but apparently it's a trustworthy technology. And he was there doing his normal course of business, and the beeper went off. And it gave the message that someone coded. Now, coded means that there was someone in his floor that stopped breathing. So he threw down whatever he was doing, ran down the hallway, and there was this one doctor, the attending doctor, who was in control of the entire shift of residents and fellows who controlled the whole environment. And the attending was telling people what to do. So one person was on oxygen, and he or she was making sure that the person that was, had coded was getting air to breathe to his lungs. Another person was on IVs, and they were pushing drugs, trying to stimulate a response. Someone else was watching the monitors to make sure everything was going in the direction that they wanted it to go. My friend's job was arguably the most important. He was doing chest compressions. And as he told the story, I mean, we were like, you could have heard a pin drop in that room. It was so quiet to think about, like, how anxious he must have felt in these moments. But what he said next is what really surprised me. You know, I watched enough Dookie Hauser, MD, growing up to know that that scene, or ER, um, that didn't surprise me. But what he said next really surprised me. He said that as they were working as hard as they could, the attending doctor yelled, stop. And we were all like, bro, you're trying to save someone's life. Why would you stop? What the attending doctor knew that they didn't was that unless they stopped periodically to align themselves to what she was saying, they would be working as hard as they could and they would be out of rhythm, out of sync, and eventually they would be unhelpful. So every now and then, as hard as they were working, they had to stop and they had to align themselves to the attending doctor to make sure that they were in the rhythm that they were supposed to be in. Now, I can imagine the anxiety of what it feels like to be working trying to save someone's life and someone tells you to stop, knowing that you can still save their life. But without doing that, you would work hard, but it wouldn't be good work. Jesus, the chief attending doctor of our soul, every now and then periodically yells to us, stop. He wants us to realign our lives and our work to him, to make sure that we are working and we are living and we are progressing and we are hearing the messages that he wants us to hear. And so there's a couple of reasons why it's so hard for us to stop. Um, some of them are internal. Some of them are external. Some of them, you know, we just don't really plan well, right? So we don't, we don't, we underestimate how much time it takes to set up our lives um, in such a way that we can give ourselves places of rest. We say yes too quickly, um, and we underestimate what we truly need to do in order to be able to have a period where we can truly stop. Another one that's really big is, is people-pleasing. Uh, you say yes to a lot of stuff because you're afraid of people and what their negative opinion of you might be. Another big one is we're perfectionists. God forbid... God forbid if everything that you do isn't absolutely quadruple-checked and absolutely perfect. 
Now, I'm a big fan of doing work excellently. I think doing hard, excellent work honors God. But some of us don't rest because we are truly perfectionists, and we believe the lie that unless it is perfect, um, then we are flawed and something is wrong with us. But the bigger thing that I think for most of us, the reason we overwork and we don't stop, is we're trying to prove ourselves. You're trying to prove yourself to yourself, to be perfectly honest. You're trying to prove yourself that if I can achieve this, then I will be significant. And in doing so, we fall victim to the comparison trap. You know what the comparison trap is? When you compare your day-to-day life to someone else's highlight reel, and then you're chasing, trying to keep up with the Joneses, not knowing that the Joneses are up to their eyeballs and stress and worry, and we're all hiding all of the anxieties that we're carrying, all trying to compete with each other, that's not what God has intended for us with work. God invites us to be able to receive his limitations, trusting in him that our life is not dependent on, our, the value of our life is not based on how far you have progressed. Now, very quickly, many of you don't want to stop because it might mean, if you were to slow down and put in boundaries, it might mean that you don't get the promotion as fast as you want to get the promotion. What does that mean about you if you don't get the promotion? What does it mean about you if you don't ever achieve this high level? Would doing it God's way be enough? When you look back on your life, what would you want to say? That I violated God's rhythms for my life for decades and I made VP. I got on the show. I did this thing. Or would you rather say, I trusted in the Lord for my entire life. I gave him access to my life. You know, one of the things I lament at Renaissance is that we don't have enough as many older people. A lot of churches are trying to get younger. Uh, I stand outside of churches and try to steal their old people after service. I put on a suit after this and I walk by and I proselytize. Growing up, I would see church mothers and church fathers, and they would be singing about the goodness of God over, over decades And it would do something to you to see an older saint singing, trusting in the Lord, talking about the goodness of God, how God has never failed them yet. If you put your life in God's hands, it is not by any means a safe journey for you, but it will be good. You will look back and you will thank God that you did it his way. Now, very briefly, um, another big obstacle um, to really stopping and putting this in practice is if you work in a profession where you are not the boss and you have a boss who has demands over you and you're a person who says, I like, I like paying my rent. You know what I'm saying? Like paying the rent is a good feeling and I don't want to get fired and I don't, this sounds good, preacher man, but like if I take this to my boss, oh, these flies are wild. If I take this to my boss, I might get fired. So what do you do uh, when you work in an environment that does not adopt your value system? So we're going to look at a, book of, uh, a couple of scriptures in the book of Daniel very briefly. And for some of you, you might have heard these scriptures uh, as it pertains to the Daniel fast. Y'all, did the Dan- y'all heard of the Daniel fast? They do that every January. The Daniel fast is not about losing belly fat. Daniel is really not about that. It is about how do you navigate as a follower of God and a follower of Jesus in a world that does not embrace your value system. So Daniel 
was a Jewish man who was carried into Babylon along with a number of other Jewish leaders. And their job in Babylon was trying to assimilate Daniel into the Babylonian way of thinking and behaving. So in verse 8, we see this. It says, Daniel determined that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine he drank. So Daniel has this inner conviction that I hope you're experiencing right now, this inner conviction that God has created you to rest. God has created you to abide in his rhythms, receiving his limitations. And Daniel's internal conviction allowed him to overcome the external pressure that was around him. And so later in verse 8, it says, So he asked permission from the chief eunuch not to defile himself. So what do we see here in Daniel? What Daniel is doing is he is displaying wisdom in the way that he is engaging with his superiors. Proverbs 15 and 2 says this, The tongue of the wise makes knowledge attractive, but the mouth of fools blurts out foolishness. So what do we see here in Daniel? Daniel is talking to this dude named Ashpenaz, and Ashpenaz um, is his superior. And what Daniel does is he displays wisdom. He goes to Ashpenaz humbly, and he asks him for permission. Later in verse 9, it says this, God had granted Daniel kindness and compassion from the chief eunuch. Yet he said to Daniel, I fear my lord, the king, who assigned your food and drink. What if he sees your faces looking thinner than the other men your age? You would endanger my life with the king. So Daniel is a realist. He knows not just is he asking for this favor, but he also realizes that in order for this eunuch, his superior to do this, his superior will be putting his own job and his well-being on the line. So what does Daniel do? So Daniel said to the guard of the the guard whom the chief eunuch had assigned to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. And here's what he does. Please test your servant for 10 days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then examine our appearance and the appearance of the young men who are eating at the king's food and deal with your servants based on what you see. He agreed with them and tested them for 10 days. At the end of the 10 days, they looked better and healthier than all the young men who were eating the king's food. So the guard continued to remove their food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables. So very briefly, what Daniel does is he asks for permission for a specific amount of time. So this could look like for you going to your boss and saying, hey, from Saturday at 6 p.m. to Sunday at 6 p.m., I'm going dark for my mental health or whatever it is that would be an attractive way to talk to your boss. Now, study after study has shown, this is not even close, people who take periods of rest are way better employees. They're way better students. Your brain is fresher. You're more creative. The people who work nonstop are worse performing employees. So if you find yourself in this position, ask your boss, your superior, just for a month. Say, hey, for a month, I just want to, I'm going to set aside Saturday at 6 till Sunday at 6. And at the end of this month, if my performance is less than my teammates, then we can revisit the conversation. But no matter what, I do want to impress on you this one thing. You answer to a different authority. You don't just answer to your boss, your superiors. We answer to God. You know, one of the number one, the number one electronic store in, Amer in New York City is uh, B&H Photo and Video. B&H is run by Hasidic Jews downtown, and they close every single Friday at 1 p.m. so they can take, get ready 
for their Sabbath. Business journals have written all about them. How could they survive in New York City and close on the busiest day of the year, busiest day of the week? And then they close again on Black Friday. They asked one of the people at B&H, who's, they're wildly successful, by the way. They asked them, why do you do this? And his answer was, we answer to a higher authority. God has good things for us. God wants to replenish us. But it requires that we accept his invitation to rest. Heavenly Father, we thank you for uh, your invitation to us to rest. Give us the courage that is required to do this. Give us the grace that we need in order to trust you so that we can receive your invitation to rest. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.